reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realised he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. Good afternoon. It's great to be here again as we begin to explore the early part of Luke's Gospel, his biography, his account of the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you for uh, sparing the time uh, this lunchtime to be here this afternoon. If you were around last week, you'll have heard me say that Luke wrote his Gospel, his biography of Jesus, to reassure Christians about what they have been taught to give followers of Jesus Christ a renewed, 
a deeper and richer certainty such that they will be confident in shaping their lives around him. That was all in verses 1 to 4. Today, in the reading that we just had, Luke begins to open up the proper part of his narrative, of his story. And as he does, let me begin uh, with this. A few weeks ago, a friend came to stay with us for the weekend, and um, she came from outside of London, so we took the opportunity with her to be tourists uh, for a couple of days. She wanted to see some of the sights, so we thought, where better to go than the Tower of London? As you know, one of the main attractions of the Tower is uh, the display of the Crown Jewels. And part of, um, part of the exhibition um, that, uh, that we saw is a projection in full colour of a film of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1952. What really struck me as I was uh, watching uh, the film was the epic scale of the whole thing. Apparently, if you had stood at the door of Westminster Abbey, just around the corner, and watched the procession go by, you'd be standing there for 45 minutes, uh, watching people process into the Abbey. And as emblems of state, the crown jewels themselves formed part of the procession. The crown of King Edward, the imperial crown of state, the crown of Mary of Medina. I had to look those up, I didn't just know that. Now, of course, the whole point of regalia and pageantry is to impress upon the person watching the greatness of the person who's about to arrive. It prepares you for the person who is about to come and what is about to happen. That idea of preparation, of getting ready, is at the heart of today's passage. But when the God of the Bible acts, He doesn't do it with pomp and circumstance, in majesty and in glory. He does so in a strange, unexpected kind of way. Let's see that worked out as Luke opens this first scene for us. And the focus of his story initially is on two faithful Israelites who are introduced to us in verses 5 and 6. And Luke uh, tells us, gives us lots of information about Zechariah and Elizabeth. He gives us their family credentials and tells us that they have an impeccable heritage. Aaron is, uh, sorry, Zechariah is a priest in the line of Aaron and Elizabeth, we're told, is also descended from Aaron. It's Luke's way of telling us that they come from good stock. They are the right kind of family. And moreover, Luke describes their way of life in verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They're faithful in God's sight, living upright, righteous kinds of religious lives. They're the kind of people that you would expect God to deal with. And yet, just as he sets them up to be heroic figures in the story, Luke turns the tables in verse 7. He tells us that they are childless. Now, alongside the personal pain of being unable to bear children, Zechariah and Elizabeth would have carried the religious belief that childlessness is a sign of God's displeasure. In the mind of a first century Jew, there was a connection based on the Old Testament scriptures, between obedience to God 
and blessing, in particular the fruitfulness of children. So to be childless in first century Jerusalem would have been to be viewed in the local community as a problem, as a source of shame. It's the kind of issue that you always have to tiptoe around when the family gets together for festivals and holidays. But as Luke begins to draw out our sympathy for this couple, he's doing something more. He is drawing a parallel between them and the whole nation of Israel. These two, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are emblematic of Israel. That's the significance of Luke's comment uh, in verse 5, that his story is set in the time of Herod, king of Judea. It's not just a comment to verify his story, although it does that. Historians note that Herod was a ruler despised by his people, as he represented to them the occupying power of Rome. He was a puppet king, and yet wasn't above exploiting his position and his own people. So at this stage in history, Luke tells us, Israel seems forsaken by God. Its sense of itself Confidence and purpose has gone missing and been misplaced somewhere. It feels abandoned and hopeless. Its dreams and hopes shattered, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. This year has been um, a, a rich year for films about Dunkirk. Not only did Christopher Nolan release his epic blockbuster earlier in the summer... But the evacuation of the beaches also provides the setting for a British film called Their Finest, which is a a film about the making of a film about Dunkirk, if uh, that makes any sense, uh, to keep up morale during the war. It's a British film, stars Bill Nye and um, a few other well-known actors. The story's focused around two of the writers of the film, and there's one line in particular that really caught my attention. One of the writers uh, is losing confidence in what they're doing and asks in an existential crisis kind of way, what's it all for? To which the other writer replies, it's never for anything. Why do you think that people like films? It's because stories are structured, have a shape, a purpose, a meaning, and when things go bad, they're still part of a plan. There's a point to them, unlike life. That may well capture something of what Zechariah and Elizabeth were feeling. What the people of Israel were feeling as Luke starts his narrative. It may well reflect what you are feeling here today. That life has no shape or meaning or structure. And that as much as you go through the motions, your hopes and dreams feel more like a burden and God seems absent. That is you here today. I hope that this story provides some comfort. That hopeless, needy people are precisely the people that God deals with. God's faithfulness to his promises is made evident in broken lives. And yet, in this wilderness moment, God is about to be at work. It was incredibly unusual to be given the role that Zechariah was given in verses 8 and 9 of going into the very heart of the temple itself to offer incense. A a little bit like um, this place, there were tens of thousands of people 
who worked in the Jerusalem temple in the first century. Each priest could only be chosen once in their lifetime for this duty, and many were never chosen at all. And yet that's not the most unusual feature of Zechariah's experience, because whilst he's standing in the sanctuary, Zechariah has a startling encounter in verse 11. An angel appears to him and tells him that his prayer has been heard. Now let me acknowledge uh, at this point that um, to some of us here, certainly um, to sceptical friends and colleagues, the idea of an angel and the supernatural more generally is deeply problematic. Luke, we saw last week, is claiming to be writing history, telling us about things that really happened. But how seriously can we take that claim if at the next moment he starts talking about angels and they will appear quite a few times uh, over the next um, chapters? That's a question that that you have. Um, Without wanting to park it too much, can I please ask you to come back next week where I'm going to address it in a little bit more detail. For now, I just want to focus on, on the story that Luke is telling. Because after all of these years of praying that God would give them a child... Finally, the longed-for answer is given. But there's a much wider resonance to what the angel tells Zechariah. This child is also the answer to the prayers of a nation. And that connection is made in verses 15 to 17, as the angel talks about what this child will do, using all sorts of Old Testament images and examples. But he is going to be the one who will prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord. Zachariah's son will call people to get ready because God himself is going to come into his world. This is the moment when God begins to bring the story of Israel to its fulfilment and climax. He's coming to his people to restore them, to bring their exile to an end, to return them to their proper place in his purposes. In um, J.R.R. Tolkien's epic story, uh, The Lord of the Rings, if if you know it, you'll know that there's a moment when um, two characters unwittingly trigger a a new direction in the story. And they're described by another character as like the falling of small stones that starts an avalanche in the mountains. In the same way... John's coming is like the falling of small stones that starts an avalanche. An avalanche of grace and mercy, of joy and peace that's going to come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. All of which sounds wonderful. Sounds very exciting. God is about to act. Yet the response to this angelic announcement isn't what you might expect. And as he draws this opening scene of his story together, Luke holds up the responses of Zechariah and Elizabeth before us, and he invites us to identify with them. On one level, it seems easier to identify with Zechariah. His seems like a very human response in verse 18. And onwards. After your hopes have been dashed year by year by year by year, the natural thing to do 
is to wall yourself in. And so he finds God's promises too much for him to bear, too hard to relate to. He experiences grace almost as if it's a painful thing, as it breaks against the defences that he's built and draws him out of himself. Elizabeth, by contrast, in verses 24 and 25, is held up as a model of faith. Her broken, in her brokenness, she is ready to see God's grace at work in her life and welcomes it with open arms. And in her words in verse 25, Elizabeth speaks more truly than she knows because she speaks for each one of us. As Luke's story unfolds, it follows Jesus, not just in his early years, but all the way on his journey to Calvary. And there, Luke presents Jesus as a saviour who dies in disgrace, so that his people might know God's favour. And yet that grace is something that almost seems too much for us, as it did with Zechariah. What do, we, what do we make of that? What do we do with that? Over the summer, I read um, the third novel in Marilyn Robinson's trilogy of novels that are set in rural Iowa and based around two families. The third novel in the trilogy is called Lila, and it's a story that takes a happily ever after, an unexpected marriage, and then pulls it apart to see what's really going on. Robinson, as one commentator puts it, is a writer who tracks the movements of grace as if it were a wild animal, appearing for fleeting intervals and then disappearing past the range of vision, emerging again where we least expect to find it. One of the ideas in the story is that grace doesn't always appear like a pleasant thing. Lila is a character who spent a lifetime fighting to survive, trusting no one, so has to learn over the course of the novel how to respond to grace and kindness, and it isn't a straightforward thing for her to do. At one point she says, when you're scolded, touch hurts. It makes no difference if it's kindly meant. It might be that for us today, God's grace almost feels a little bit like that. Too good to be true. Like a drop of water on burnt skin. Yet Luke writes to make us certain of it. And to keep us trusting in the God who is faithful. That he will work out his plans and purposes in ways that we might not expect. And that as he does... His grace will draw us out of ourselves into deeper and richer currents of his love. As we close, I'm going to pray. So let's take a moment and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the coming of your Son into your world. Thank you that he came to bring your grace, your truth, your life and your love. Please would you help us to trust him as we follow through Luke's account of his life. In his name we pray. Amen.